Hey everybody and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And I'm Natalie Latofsky. And this is our first new episode of 2023. It's a crazy year to think of existing. Because we waited a while also. Yeah. We had we had plans to jump right into a New Year's episode after the holidays and uh, then... Life. Life. <laughs> so we're getting back into the swing of things with this one. And uh, we already have plans for a follow-up episode, and although it'll probably be seamless to you, it's very likely that we're recording everything in one go today, so it'll be an interesting recording session, but we've done that before. So in this episode, uh, we have a nice little twofer that's uh, based around the concept of meta-horror, a, a movement that has had several forms over the last particularly 25, 30 years. Yeah, roundabout. Uh, in which people keep finding ways to try to reinvent or, or revisit the genre in self-aware or other ways. And while we don't necessarily go for hugely high concept, although we usually try to come up with fun pairs thematically or mm -hmm. other ways, or things in their remakes, we've done a lot of that and we'll probably continue to do that. These two just naturally fell into place because... We realized they're both movies we enjoy revisiting a lot and had never actually talked about. So this will also be one of those rare occasions where the episode is 100% positive. Because <laughs> we like the movies a lot already and we're eager to tell you to see them. However, uh, full spoilers for both of these. Sure. So we'll tell you right up front. The movies we're talking about in this episode, if you haven't seen any of the visuals on social media are uh, The Cabin in the Woods from 2011 and The Final Girls from 2015, both of which approach, in general, the slasher movie subgenre in very self-aware and interesting, twisty ways. I'd also like to add that even though we watch these a lot and we love them, it hadn't actually occurred to us to record them for the podcast and I put out a post, a post on post, still feels weird saying that, but I posted on post a post where I asked people if they had ideas for what we should watch. And this actually was a sort of a product of one of those conversations on that post. Um, so we're going to put call outs in the the write-up for the episode on our website to link to people's profiles. But this one was from CZ Hargett. Um, who had suggested both of these titles separately, and I realized they they went really well together. I want to also jump in at the beginning and address the elephant in the room, uh, which is a very big toxic elephant. Bad elephant. Whose name is Joss Whedon. <laughs> uh, and it's a complicated situation. So Cabin in the Woods was co-created by Joss Whedon, together with uh, writing partner Drew Goddard, who's also seemed to make a lot of his more recent life convincing the world that there's actually a Cloverfield franchise when there isn't one. But anyway, that's another whole story. He believes. He really believes. He thinks that's what it is. It's but sweet. He's wrong. But anyway, um, <laughs> probably yeah. all of you that are listening, I think we probably talked about him at some point over the years, but if you're listening, I think you know everything you need to know. And it's a tricky situation. I think over the last few years in particular, I think I've very well settled in the idea that if at all possible, if I know someone is objectionable definitively, like if I know that that's true, I can no longer separate 
I also genuinely have come around to the idea that separating art from artists is a trap that is designed to give people that are toxic a chance to continue to poison our culture. And that that argument is not a valid argument, that it's not only used by them to keep their power in the culture, but also by those who are just so enamored with something that they can't stand the thought of reevaluating their likes in order to face the fact that what they like is derived from something terrible. I'm looking at all of you Harry Potter fans. And the fact is, if we did cancel people the way the cancel yeah. people think they are, all I keep saying is just imagine the incredibly rich and varied and much more beautiful culture we would have if all those people just shut up and went away when we told them to. And so Whedon's a problem because I do love Marvel movies. He had a big part in creating probably one of the finest moments in the history of that series with the Avengers. I guess, and I'm willing to accept the fact that I'm still probably dealing with an argument that is not valid and based more on my privilege and my desire to maintain my likes. Mm. I've tried very hard to edit out a lot of things that I know are wrong, from Woody Allen movies in my childhood to many other things. I haven't edited out certain things that Whedon's been a part of, but the one little piece I hold on to that may not at all be valid given everything else I've just said is that if it is not solely the product of that one person's voice, I find myself a little bit of an out to say, well, it isn't an auteur situation. He didn't solely create this, and therefore there are many other voices involved in its creation. Cabin in the Woods is one of those examples, and therefore I'm willing to continue to watch it and enjoy it with the knowledge that although he contributed to it, he did not solely shape the final product. I would agree on that count. Um, you sort of, I mean, you mentioned Woody Allen as an example. He's someone where you can see it's entirely him in everything that he makes. Oh, yeah. It yeah. is his voice, his vision, his drive, and everybody is just there to bring his vision to life. Yes. I think a film like this, and maybe one of the reasons that Joss Whedon's work has kind of still managed to kind of maybe supersede whatever is an issue with him, is that they're all very ensemble based it's like a collection of voices it's a collection of actors it had him at the helm but it doesn't feel like it's entirely him i think there have been instances where i've seen what he creates when it's really just his vision there's a lot of episodes of buffy where it's so clear that like that's whedon talking and i find them very off-putting mm -hmm. and this is not one of those situations. I do feel like this is something that had a lot of input from a lot of people. And it's why, you know, with the, I guess, the disclaimer of like, it is Whedon and take from that what you will. I still feel like it's worth a revisit and it's worth a watch. And we do, like I said, we revisit both of these movies quite a bit. And, uh, 
think they're wonderful examples of um, what's already a receding era in our the, 20, the 2010s. <laughs> but as I said before, again, just a reminder, full spoilers, both of these movies, particularly this one, actually this one, we'll talk about it. It, it, it I remember when I hadn't seen it yet, and mm-hmm. I didn't see it for many years after it existed. And I don't remember when I first saw it. I don't think it was with you. I think I'd seen it before that. I but think so. I I had always, I'd gotten the initial idea of, oh, there's kind of a twist to it. But as it turns out, the movie doesn't turn on that twist. In fact, it tips it in the opening sequence mm-hmm. that something's going on. And really, the revelation of what's really going on is not so much a twist as it is just the first act beat that then makes everything much more complicated it's a twist for the characters but not for the viewers really not yeah so it's not really like but but there's a lot going on in this that obviously this is a movie that does genuinely uh benefit from you seeing it fresh the first time without really knowing anything it's a lot more fun that way but anyway full spoilers as we always do so if you're regular listeners you know and if you haven't seen either of these movies uh obviously we're here to tell you we highly recommend both so in this case we would say go watch them first and then come back and join us. It's gonna be a long weekend if everyone's that puckered up. So you wanna come over Monday night? I'm gonna pick up some power drills, liberate my cabinets. Are you even listening to me? And in the cabin in the woods, we're taking basically the entire basis of this movie is that evidently for a vast stretch of human history, the Lovecraftian old ones, the ancient gods of whom Lovecraft wrote and many others after, evidently were indeed the the elder gods were in control of Earth at some point and at some point defeated or repressed. And as part of some ritual, they remain in slumber as long as they're given sacrifices. But those sacrifices have evidently evolved into a very specific form that is also unique to various cultures around the world, only some of which we get a a glimpse of, but we stick mainly with the American side of things. And basically what we learn is, annually, the old ones are kept sleeping if they receive a ritual sacrifice that takes the form of what we've all come to know as your standard Friday the 13th slasher movie. You know, where all the kids get together and go to the cabin for the weekend. Well, it turns out every trope you ever knew about slasher movies and why are they so stupid and why are they going into the woods and why are they having sex and why are they doing that? Well, it turns out all of it is part of the pattern that must be played out every year in order to keep the old ones satisfied. (laughs) And there is a massive, which will I'd love to know, but also have said many times, sometimes it's best when fans don't get what they want. I don't need a follow up. This one, by the way, also does not need a sequel ever. And yet I'd love to see one, but I also think it would be a terrible idea. (laughs) There's a massive underground facility and there must be one in every country and every culture all around the world that helps to facilitate this ritual through the use of technology and surveillance equipment and apparently an extraordinarily large menagerie of monsters and creatures and demons and supernatural entities, all of whom by means we'll never know are somehow kept in check and controlled by the system to be deployed to kill whoever is chosen to be the sacrifices of the year. And in doing so, 
the old ones remain asleep. Except, of course, for the year we join them for purposes of the story when all hell breaks loose. It's a fascinating combination of science and technology and this sort of supernatural mysticism, but also kind of like office space. Like it's also kind of a workplace comedy of like all the people who work at this facility and we're getting to know all of them too. Like I have a a short list of movie openers that I love watching just the opening. Like I don't even care if I watch the rest of the movie sometimes. And this is one of those movies where the first scene of the movie is honestly one of my favorite opening scenes of film period it's just so clever and i love it and it's such an odd and brilliant choice to have the like workplace group kind of helmed by bradley whitford which is like an odd choice you don't expect to see him in a slasher but like there he is and it's just so inane it's like the dumbest workplace conversation and it's then punctuated by like the slasher sound and the credits coming up on screen and you just think like what am i watching yeah (laughs) what is this and then we leave them for a while and you don't quite know where you were until it all knits up and you realize oh that's where we were Mm -hmm. and yeah so you mentioned bradley whitford who most people probably remember from west wing but he has the most incredibly perfect dry sense of humor and and it's weird he works to me too because i don't expect him in a movie like this and yet he clearly has the chops for it and an interest he's also made quite a, a appearance in get out for instance and yeah like he he's turning up and stuff like this and then you realize oh it's bradley you know, i completely forgot he was in get out because it's like i think of this as like this is bradley whitford's horror moment but like clearly he loves the genre so he's gonna come back for it he would have voted for obama three times if he could have four five so <laughs> so yeah i mean obviously he likes the genre and he's cool with it and it's a fantastic pairing him and richard jenkins are two Sort of like guys working in the facility underground. Another name you wouldn't expect to see. Exactly. In this. The the two of them are the ones that are working in the facility underground that facilitates the sacrifice by means of basically forcing the playing out of what seems like a typical, heavily tropey, early 80s slasher movie scenario, which we find out, as I said, basically are all the elements necessary, apparently, to satisfy the gods. Like there has to be, and they they lay it out. There are five friends that go. The five friends include Chris Hemsworth. The year that he's going to kick off his Thor, and if I remember right, they had completed this, but it didn't come out until after Thor came out. So this movie, not that it needed it, because it's also excellent on its own, but this movie really benefited from the fact that he hit it big, like right at that moment, and then this came out. And they certainly wouldn't have gotten him necessarily after Thor. Right. But they got him right before. So he's in it. Um, but it's a group of friends. Uh, there's the jock, which he is. There's like the girl who's the sexy girl. There's the geeky guy and like sort of the stoner guy. There's the what is it, the scholar. And then more or less our final girl, who is our lead. But one of the things you also mention is that they defy the tropes. 
by all being obviously smart and against the stereotypes, immediately we're told, we're shown that all of them are actually very smart people. They are not the cliches, yeah. which means they need to work harder, the facility people, mm -hmm. to get them to conform to the cliches in order for the ritual to work. It's truly a testament to the writing that all of that information is so casually intertwined into it where you have the opening sequence of like the girls chatting and Jules, the character Jules is supposed to be, I mean, by definition in their sacrifice, the little trope she fits into is what they call the whore. Mm -hmm. And it's clear that like, she suddenly went blonde before this like weekend away. And like, that's new, but she's also like, they slide into conversation that she's pre-med. Like she's not an idiot. And the same thing, her jock, boyfriend hemsworth character is giving advice about like which economics textbooks to take you know to read over and talking about the lectures and how to get through some of these courses that you know one of the other characters is taking the the um the fool character is also very inventive and ingenious and witty and smart and it's and I really think he's the one that in a way by being stoned stay smartest longest because he's <laughs> the one that actually figures out they're being watched and that this is all being arranged mm -hmm. uh, and most amusingly the the last victim on the list who they say quote unquote like lives or dies as the fates allow but i suspect the fates never allow them to live um is the virgin and like she looks like kind of confused she's like virgin like what oh, yeah. is this and it's sort of like, yeah, the, the lines like we take what we can get. And it's like this beautiful bending and twisting of of religion as well. Like they're using these old gods as a way to like take down organized religion as a whole. Well, two things about that. One is that the line is delivered in the f end of the third act by yeah. a big surprise director of this entire operation, Sigourney Weaver who is spending a lot of time at this point being the surprise cameo at the end of movies. She's also, she also turns up at the end of Paul. Which yeah, is Paul. She's the surprise cameo movie. of the director of an organization of secretive supernatural research. <laughs> yeah. Consistently. Just, you need her to show up. And she will. But like you, I remember you mentioned that one of the things that comes up are like this whole thing of like, okay, they have to play out certain things in order to conduct this ritual. Like the the jock and the whore have to have sex. The, the she's the whore's the first to go, um, because she's unclean. You know, yeah, the whore is and first. The virgin's last. The virgin's it's... last, and and uh, the, the, all these different roles. Except that they're not those people really, because like we just said, they're well-rounded, normal people and mm -hmm. smart people. So in other words, they have to do stuff. Like they've been drugging the one girl's hair uh, bleach or whatever to make her stupider for like a year at least. In other words, they're working on this year round mm -hmm. for every annual sacrifice. And then other things, the cabin that they go to, which by the way, the cat, the cabin in the woods, um, which is clearly linked to the underground facility, like whatever other location in every country in the world is conducting its ritual thing, which they're all doing it by the way, at the same time, the goal being, well, surely one of us will get it right, but we need lots of backup. This, of course, is the year that everything goes horribly awry or else we wouldn't be watching it. But 
the cabin is basically, although there's a lot of tropes here that apply to many movies, the cabin is just straight up the Evil Dead cabin. It looks almost identical to it, at least on the outside, and like sort of a living forest around it. And they even do the trick of the roads out and that kind of thing. The, all the different things they have to do, they're pumping gases into the house and into the neighboring forest. Pheromones. Gases, gases to make them stupid or gases to make them make bad choices gases to make them have sex and one of the things you pointed out like you were just saying is there's this wonderful undercurrent throughout this whole movie i mean it's not even subtext it's it's there it's text it's overcurrent yeah is this whole thing throughout the whole movie of the incredibly laughable hypocrisy that all the world's religions engage in in order to maintain their illusion of faith and devotion to their ancient ideas made by primitive people who didn't know any better and like and it's sort and, of a star trek episode yeah and run through and jump through hoops in order to do it like you know oh yeah the ritual has to play out this way but we'll also stack the deck by pumping them full of drugs and and filling the basement with a million things they can pick and one of them will be the thing that unleashes the horror that kills them but there are 4,000 of them in that basement so that they'll surely pick something. And like you get to a point where it's like, how is this even remotely valid to these ancient old ones who require some sort of ritual if everything is run from a control room in mm-hmm. the late in the early 21st century to make sure this happens? And there's even dialogue about it where great character too, the guy who plays the new security guy, Brian White, who serves in a great way to provide us with the audience perspective and exposition because he's new to the operation. He asks the questions and he's like, how good, how is this any good if you make it happen? And they're like, well, we set it all up, but they still have to make the choice. And it's like, please, you're pushing them toward the choice. There's no way that this is free will. There's a lot of mental gymnastics involved there where they have to convince themselves that, this is still a choice being freely made. And somehow that also works to convince the gods that this is a choice freely made. But again, this is not a flaw of the movie. This is a, this is a theme of the movie for sure. That, that organized modern organized religion is a joke that pretends to still care about the things it's based on, but uses every trick in the book in order to make it work for a modern life. And it just simply doesn't make sense. What's also fascinating to me is that the ritual has to be so specific. Like the only thing that works to appease these old gods is killing four to five people once a year in a specific specific order And the people are very specific people. But in the last act of the movie, you have two of the characters, the the fool and the virgin, like teaming up, which they make a great little team of of trying to get past all this. They actually make their way into the underground facility, hit the very large and easily accessible purge button that's just there that empties every single like nightmare demon horror cube in their stable into the elevator lobby for some reason that exists. I don't know why the button exists, but it exists, you know, to progress the plot. And 
everything just goes berserker and all of these monsters are unleashed upon the facility and they're just killing wholesale. Like the walls are literally dripping with blood. I love that a unicorn is a monster. I love. I mean, it so it's much. it's that that final thing. You can watch that final sequence a million times and not see everything. It's we can talk so a little bit like about the specific monsters. I particularly in that. like the guy who's clearly Pinhead, but yeah. But, but anyway, but the point is, there is so much death happening. Right. I mean, if these old gods are appeased by death but apparently not but apparently not right so you have literally hundreds of people if not thousands of people getting killed in horrific ways that are sure to please the weird old fire people who live in the pit of the earth and love death but one stoner is still alive so the ritual is not complete. And that's the craziest part of all of it to me. And what's even crazier is this is only the way it works in the United States. One of the things that also becomes clear is every culture not only has to do this every year, basically as a stopgap, just in case everyone else doesn't get it. Which, only like one I has said, to succeed. Only one has to succeed. But also they're all completely different. Like the the idea of five people in a specific order, four or five in a specific order, mm -hmm. and those roles, that is only the United States. Over in Japan, it's a group of school kids who are facing like a spirit demon. And you see like a beautiful little parody of many of the, you know, what now over here we keep calling J-Horror, but like, you know, the, the stuff that was really uh, experiencing a huge uptick at the beginning of the 2000s, like everything from the ring to the grudge to all that. You see that kind of parodied a bit in this through the one that's going on there. And I think we also get like a glimpse of what I think is Norway or something. It looks like a giant troll monster that they managed, the authorities managed to kill. So they didn't, that didn't work out. They, people stopped it. But I mean, in other words, this, speci this specificity is different in every culture conducting the ritual unique to their particular culture and mythology and folklore. Mm -hmm. So we don't even know. That's the one thing I think we once talked about, that if you were going to do a follow-up to this, it would be good not to ruin the ending or go forward, but you could jump to another country and watch what was happening while this was happening. Right. And see that. Um, not Japan, because we saw plenty of that. We know enough of what happened <laughs> in Japan to know what happened. But yeah, that, that it's all very different. Which also means that this, in its own way, has a lot to say about American culture and what we value and don't value and, and how we, you know, uh, characterize young people. And this is a great scene early on with the Harbinger, the guy who's <laughs> the typical Ralph from Friday the 13th, who apparently must be there to tell them, you don't want to go down that road, so that they choose to, to go down that go. road. Except that apparently he takes his job very seriously, which is one of the funniest bits in the movie. Cleanse them. Cleanse the world of their ignorance and sin. Bathe them in the crimson of... Am I on speakerphone? No, absolutely not. Speakerphone, no. No, I wouldn't do that. Yes, I am. I, I can hear the echo. Oh my god, you're right. Hang on one second, I'll take you off. That's rude. I don't know who's in the room. Fine, there. You're off. Thank you. Don't take this lightly, boy. 
was all by your numbers. The fool nearly derailed the invocation with his insolence. The ancient ones see everything, and they will not be... I'm still on speakerphone, aren't I? <laughs> oh my god, Mordecai! And you also mentioned, by the way, one of the other themes of this connected to the theme of how much they stack the deck technologically to facilitate something that should be happening naturally, but Mm -hmm. that's religion for you, is the fact that when you see the underground facility, one of the things you've said you always love is you see an amazing layering of technology. They have like control systems that look like they're from the 70s and 80s. Uh, a panel that they evidently have to activate when everyone dies that looks like it's clearly been there for a very long time because it operates on wooden gears. Mm -hmm. They have phones and old handsets that look like they're from the 60s, but they also have computers that look like they're modern. It's like they've been patching together stuff in this place for a long time. Yeah. But with it has also come this incredible level of comfort and overconfidence and complacency which leads to the kind of byplay that sets up that opening we see with Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins. They just they do treat this like it's just another day at the office, but it isn't. And part of the reason that everything goes wrong is clearly because we've gotten to a point where they were taking it far too lightly. It also, I mean, just the design of the actual facility to look like such a real place like having like the big post signs that tell you which department you're in and arrows and the fact that they ride around in golf carts and it feels very much like you're in like a nasa facility or something like that interesting side note about that too because i just looked up to see if there's anything interesting we want to throw in yeah so almost the entire underground facility was specifically built as sets i mean Mm -hmm. obviously that control room is very very well thought out yeah um Almost everything were sets, but apparently, and this is from the Wikipedia, for several wide shots, the British Columbia Institute of Technology's Aerospace Building was used. Oh, well, that explains why it looks like NASA. It want, They wanted something, <laughs> they said, high-tech industrial, according to production designer Martin Whist, and that was a brand new building, never been shot in before. I wanted the elevators to be without any controls, to feel like a glamorized freight elevator, the lobby, I wanted to look slightly utilitarian, contemporary, institutional, sharp, and almost characterless. And I think that that's probably the shots like in the opening where they're in the golf cart. Yeah. That's probably in that building because the control room and the smaller stuff, Is that's all, all sets. To say nothing of all the CGI of the mm-hmm. like the monster containers and everything. That's all yeah. just generated. And there's another interesting thing I never knew. Like we are saying before... This has some of the most amazing creature design of any movie ever, and they throw away tons of it in, like, shots that last seconds. And, like, these big, wide shots. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, they literally refer to it as the stable of, like, their monsters, and you realize they have, I mean, at least, like, over a hundred in there, but probably hundreds. It's like... Almost any of these creature designs could carry a movie, if not a franchise, and they threw it all the way into one movie, which is amazing. One thing I didn't know was that the zombies technically are the zombies from Left 4 Dead 2. There was originally a plan to tie in with the video game. Oh, interesting. But the the Valve uh, deal fell through, 
but Valve apparently still allowed them to use monsters from Left 4 Dead 2. So I guess, I forget what they call them, like the various stages, kind of like Resident Evil, they're like clickers and different kinds. Mm -hmm. There must be some visible in there somewhere. Apparently they let them still use the monster designs in and around all the other creatures they had, but whatever. It's also one of my favorite little touches, and honestly one that a lot of people like and have have commented on is that as part of this whole workplace sort of comedy bit they have before it all begins they have this big board where they're all betting on like which monster is going to get called forth because they got a whole basement full of stuff it could be anything and they like lay all these bets down and somebody is getting upset because they thought they won their bet because they had picked zombies and he's trying to explain it's richard jenkins his character explaining you know you picked zombies but this is the zombie redneck torture family see it's like (laughs) the difference between an elephant and an elephant seal right and it's just such a great line the way it's written to say like it's all the people that rip apart genres and try to subdivide and say well this isn't this because it's that and we've talked about that a lot before sure about like people who argue for example as to whether alien is a horror movie or a sci-fi movie and the answer is yes yes it is obviously jeopardy thinks so they just recently put it in a horror category they did probably (laughs) angry letters coming in saying that's science fiction i can just imagine it's both it really is we did it it's both and it's such a it's a little moment in the midst of everything else where it also feels like another little meta commentary about the way people try to subdivide yes horror because the creatures man i mean the variety oh, of creatures so, so fast some of them i love the thing that's like flying through it's a beautiful cgi effect where he looks like he's literally pulling people's souls out of their bodies mm-hmm. like like they're trying to fight to stay in he's like ripping their sides beautiful like visual um the unicorn is amazing amazing. um fun fact as as twitter was crumbling down everybody was going back and looking at you know what were our tweets that did like the the best out of anything you've ever tweeted and my highest performing tweet of all time was when starbucks released their unicorn frappuccino and everyone was like, wow, this looks so fun. It's amazing. And we were like, yeah, um, do you want to just go ahead and look at the nutritional information? And when you do, it's like enough sugar to like keep the Keebler factory in business for like an entire year just in one drink. And I had put out this tweet, the like live look of the Starbucks unicorn frappuccino, like you know going after your insulin levels or something and it was that gif from cabin in the woods of the unicorn just stabbing the guy to death against the wall and it's like it just everyone went viral it went viral and people i think really gravitate to that moment in cabin in the woods because it's this amazing little like they even use the music of like this ethereal unicorn music and a neigh from the horse it's like why is the unicorn a monster now but okay it's fine it's gonna do it i think um my favorite is one of the monsters is just i think it's supposed to be a sort of like samara ring thing yeah 
where it's this little girl just slowly walking after somebody who's like crawling away and she's just basically like walking behind them like you know something's gonna happen something's gonna happen but she's just kind of like what are you doing why are you walking (laughs) away here and it's it's it's, pure mayhem at the end it's amazing yeah and i mean basically the ending comes down to a sequence where we finally get to almost haunted palace style the the platform above the endless chasm upon under which the old that's the other thing i was telling you like you were saying it was they they bring the same cabin every year like like we're also talking about like how do people not notice that all these people get taken every year or whatever and it's like well first of all it clearly is a global multi-government uh you know effort with tons and i feel like if i were going to expand the mythos i would say probably all these underground facilities are linked either virtually or otherwise, obviously, because they got to keep tabs on what everybody else is doing. But I would suspect there are multiple cabins and locations with hatches down to the facility in multiple places in every country that runs it. So it's not always this cabin or this location. Maybe there's one in like Wisconsin or there's one over in California and there's one upstate New York. They must have a lot so they can keep moving around and doing this in different places. Because I kept thinking, like, surely they can't have, like, five friends from the same college disappear. Every year. Every year. Right. I mean, like, that's just not Also, it just might be something that doesn't bear close scrutiny and you just, you know. Yeah, or, I mean, they got a lot of mind control abilities. Maybe they just, like, make everybody forget that it's happening. Maybe the school's on board with it. I don't know. But, like, at the very end, we get the the moment uh i did tell you people full spoilers i i mean i think we where uh where sigourney <laughs> weaver lays it. it all out for them and we're left with the virgin and the fool and at one point our our lead girl who i i don't want to keep referring to without a name is Kristen connelly she plays dana and she has the option to potentially kill marty and like sigourney weaver's who's fran kranz it's very good and uh, in fact, he he's awesome. In many ways, he's the most Whedon-esque of the characters because he does most of the one-liners and the. I've loved you know, him in everything he's ever he's been, good. and he's an amazing actor. They're all great in this, and and uh, and Sigourney Weaver basically tells her, you know, if you kill him now, we can still do this. And like the place is rumbling because the old ones are starting to wake up. Like, where's my fourth person? And she chooses not to. They kill Sigourney Weaver instead, which is another one of those moments like you would say. It's like, you know, they just got a death. Isn't that enough? Well, apparently not. It's not the right death. And the movie has what I think you said, one of your favorite openings. I think this movie has become one of my favorite endings of any horror movie, any movie I've ever seen. Because it's an ending that absolutely, completely delivers on the premise in a way that I wouldn't expect it to go all the way. But the final visual is like funny, exciting, thrilling, creepy, everything. And it actually follows through on, yes, we're doing this. And that's one of the reasons I would say never do a sequel. Although I did think I had a moment this last time watching it, a feeling a bit like you've had one of your things that's recurred on our show from time to time is you like watching a movie I've loved or like I saw and you come up with a better ending. Mm-hmm. I came up with an alternate ending for this that I kind of like that certainly would have opened the door, but I love the ending they have. But it occurred to me the one thing that almost doesn't sit well, but it does. I'm fine with it, but it almost doesn't sit well as 
there really is very little reason for her to me not to choose to kill him, knowing that she's damning the entire world to an ending right? by not doing it. And my ending would be that she does choose to kill him. And then we get like a one year later title card and it's a new group of people because almost everybody we know from the facility at the end, including, by the way, another Whedon regular Amy Acker, who was on um, who was on Angel and, and uh, one of the two actors that appeared in one of the saddest scenes in television history that still makes me cry just thinking about it. So we're moving on is um, they're all dead. Bradley Whitford, Richard Jenkins, I would do like a one year later. And then we're seeing a bunch of people, maybe even with Kristen Connolly, having the, the, you know, workplace scene. And you realize that by making that choice and doing it there, she's now become part of the team that runs the thing. And she's now in the system and they're watching the next group arriving. And if, if I really want to get real nuanced, I would even end on like a close up of her face with a look of she's not sure she's ready for this. Like, oh, who knows what might happen next? Because she knows what this is like. But I kind of like that idea of like maybe she would be a part of it. I mean, once you've actually seen proof that it's all true. Right. It's like I feel like everyone who works there probably had a first year where they're like, I I'm not really sure if this is a real thing, like the thing you know, is, their when, ethics, their scruples, but it's real. But it's the all thing real. is, even when it works, they've seen all the creatures, but in keeping with the general stupidity of human nature, they've seen all those creatures, but they haven't seen the old ones. Yeah. So I get the feeling that even knowing all the creatures they have and was it the stable? Yeah. They could still be walking around saying, yeah, but I don't know if that would really happen just because we didn't do it this year until... The this. big hand shows up. Right. So I don't know that that would matter that they know. I you mean, know? every so often they they say, oh, we're going to make a sequel to this. And it's a terrible idea. I, I hesitate to say this because it's definitely not my favorite genre maneuver. But I feel like if you were going to make another movie, which I'm not saying they should. I think it stands alone very well. If you're going to make another movie, I feel like the only way you can do it is as a prequel and not a sequel. Yeah. You know, like you, you need a movie wherein you, I guess, sort of see something else about this world or this ritual or something. You know, in fact, my alternate ending could be the ending of a prequel in which one of the characters we saw is an older guy. Like, how about if Richard Jenkins or Bradley Whitford's characters were once the teens? Right. Or Sigourney Weaver. Or Sigourney... Oh, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Cast someone who's the young Sigourney Weaver, and she's the one that saw it all. And that's... Yep. All right. I still think it's a bad idea, but I... <laughs> I think we both agree on that. I agree, yeah. But I love that. If, like, that's your one way in, is do the prequel that shows that Sigourney Weaver's character was the final girl once before. That's a brilliant idea. I mean, really, the only other route is sort of what you were saying, where we see what was happening at one of these other side cool. facilities, right. which essentially is what he's been trying to do with Cloverfield. Like, that's kind of been 
of like, oh, this is also happening over here and this is happening over there. And by the way, it's all part of this. Very, That's very vaguely. Though. Very vaguely. But what I mean is yeah. that I think yeah. is another way you could do a stealth sequel where it's you kind see of the, some kind yeah. of trailer for a film about some crazy like troll attack in Finland or whatever. You know, but as it turns out, that's actually what's happening during Cabin in the Woods. Here's another thing about that. For a short time, there seemed to be a real thing uh, of surprising us mm. by making it turn out to be a thing we didn't know was connected. Sometimes during the movie, sometimes before. Like One of the things I really respected was that group that were doing... We haven't talked about it because you can't watch them, but a short while ago, I rewatched Blair Witch for the first time in a long time and really enjoyed revisiting again. It's a movie I always liked, but thought was became victim of its own hype. It's like not nearly as good as the phenomenon that built around it, mm. but it's good. And then I finally caught up to that sequel they did a few years ago uh, that was called Blair Witch. That's one of these like, you know, legacy sequel things where it turns out Heather's brother, is, I think it was his brother is going to find out what happened. And there was a sequel. I really liked it. I thought it did a nice job of basically doing the same thing again, but in a slightly more modern way with a nice ending that also felt like a good punch. And what's interesting is when they announced at that time, they were calling it The Woods. They were working on a movie called The Woods. But people started getting like little tantalizing bits. They put out like a poster. There was a red and black poster that said The Woods. And everybody's like, this really feels like Blair Witch. And a lot of us like, Blair Witch? And then, like, they went to a festival to debut the movie and suddenly, like, revealed the poster. And then, again, also, because I'm such a fan of good graphic design, the poster had what looked like intertwining tree uh, shapes that came in the center and said the woods at the bottom. But when they revealed the real poster, it was like a beautiful outgrowth of that with more trees like a building on the original design and then instead of the woods it said Blair Witch at the bottom and I was like ah we knew it but it was so much fun because it was like suddenly we we were like all in it together like oh surprise Blair Witch we didn't know was coming mm -hmm. it would be so cool to do an entire movie that you don't know is a cabin in the woods edition and then go surprise, like even just like late in the movie, we suddenly cut to the facility underground and we'd all, it would be minds blown kind of moment. Like, you, oh my God. You see on screen what's cabin. going on in yeah. the US version. We're in the Cabin in the Woods universe. That would be fun. Yeah. You know, it's just that again, all these things we're thinking of, you know, you could still wind up with a terrible movie and then you go, oh, it's a shame they bothered because it was such a good standalone. It wouldn't be terrible if we were involved. Call us Hollywood. That's right. I wonder if all this blood is just corn syrup, you know, like these characters are walking around with just corn syrup in their veins, you know? Let's give it a shot here. Oh, oh, God. Oh, no, that is, um, that is not corn syrup. That is, oh, God, that's blood. Our pairing, which only afterward did I realize just how excellent the pairing really is mm -hmm. in a lot of ways is The Final Girls, a movie that I often feel is one of those ones that a lot of people still don't know exists and that has often been overlooked. And I very often see people discovering it. It's from 2015. It's relatively recent, but it's been a while. This is when I showed you for the first time when you yeah, first saw it. I'd never seen it, but also you didn't like it when you first saw it. And then we saw it together 
and I really liked it, and it felt like it kind of bent you more toward, oh, I see some of the things. And then we've grown to really like revisiting it. Mm -hmm. But it's also, in a very different way, a meta movie, a movie that takes slasher tropes, again, also from very specifically the Friday 13th camp or forest-based kind of slasher, much like Cabin in the Woods, and gives it a weird meta twist. In this case, the meta twist is that um, our lead character in it is a girl whose mother is Teza Farmiga is the girl and Malin Ackerman, who I still remember best from Watchmen years ago, mm. is her mother who years ago when she was a, a struggling actress appeared as one of the girls who gets killed in a Friday the 13th type of movie. And uh, it was Camp Bloodbath. And in this, it's years after she died in a car accident. Teza Farmiga's character, Max and her friends, five friends again, like the five friends in Cabin Woods, also including a stoner type character instead of, uh, you know, Marty in in Cabin in the Woods. um, We've got Duncan, who's Thomas Middleditch, but very (laughs) much a parallel to that. He's just playing himself, really. Uh, Yeah, and they're doing like a special screening of Camp Bloodbath and its sequel, and they want Max to show up, and she's kind of conflicted. And while they're in the movie theater, a fire breaks out. They try to escape the burning theater, but they escape through the screen only to find that they've actually entered Camp Bloodbath. And now they're trapped inside the movie that has to play out the way the movie played out, except by their very presence. They are changing certain things in the movie. And also, of course, Max is getting a chance to sort of reunite with her mother, but not quite because it's her mother as the character she is in the movie. But also, she kind of starts picking up on the fact that Max knows her and that there's more going on there. Right. And I have to say, the more times I see it, the more I'm convinced this is a, a, a deeply heartfelt story. It is incredibly sweet with a lot of heart and and a beautiful emotional like core relationship a mother daughter relationship it may not be the greatest movie in the world but i'm not i'm not so sure it isn't far better than than even i i, mean, I think it's far better than a lot of people give it credit for it's clever it's funny it also has like adam divine in it who might people might remember from things like pitch perfect he's one of those great improv guys who's just great at throwing out 40 lines mm-hmm. and it has a lot of that sense of humor to it but it's very serious when it gets to the emotional moments yeah i mean i think ultimately for me the first time i watched it i think i didn't really know what I was in for. I didn't really know much about it. I'd like heard people talk about it on festival circuit. And I basically just pre-ordered the Blu-ray release, like sight unseen, not knowing what it was. Cause I tend to do that from time to time where I'll just sort of say like, okay, here's some more independently made films that aren't from a 24. And that's already a, a tick in the plus column for me. Right. And so it's like it's sort of independent. It's got a, a cast of actors that I know and really like. It's got Aaliyah Shawcat in it as well. Who, From uh, Arrested Development, some people remember. Yeah, um, and I I love her and basically everything she does. So I thought, oh, I'll just get it sight unseen. And the first time I watched it, I think I just didn't know what it was. 
And if you don't know what you're coming in for, I think it can feel a bit disjointed. There were parts that I felt like dragged a bit. And there are still parts I feel drag a bit, but I love the characters so much at this point. I'm all right with it. There are also occasionally moments where it's not, it feels like it's not quite sure how goofy it wants to get. Right. Like there are moments in the movie where because the the Camp Bloodbath movie had like on screen uh, text, there are occasionally moments where like they're stepping over text that appears because it was a, a caption on screen. Yeah. Or like or what, what dissolving I, into a flashback. Oh, that what I think is one of the most visually beautiful sequences is there's a moment in the original movie where Malin Ackerman's character tells the flashback about why the killer became what he became. That typical kid was bullied. He's now a killer. And it flashbacks to the 50s in black and white. And while they're there in the movie, they're like seeing what looks like water dripping down slowly from the ceiling to create the shift to the flashback. But it's like, what would happen if you were in the middle? It's kind of like the Wayne's World joke, you know, the diddly dum diddly dum thing. Where they're, it's like, what would happen <laughs> if you're like shifting into a flashback in the real world, right. what it would look like? It's And also we've talked about the music in this is phenomenal i think one of my favorite moments in the entire movie that i think is possibly one of the best scenes in any slasher movie ever regardless whether you consider this one partly a parody or not is um was it billy right the killer yeah it's very much based on jason because he's got a mask a mask and a machete but there's a scene where he's jumping out of like a second story window or something with fire behind him and it's a slow motion shot of him jumping down through flame while this very like 80s video game kind of motif plays it's just perfect <laughs> you know shot. how i love synth there's yeah. a lot of synth in the soundtrack to this it's beautiful So honestly, it's like it's hard for me to remember why it was I didn't love it the first time I watched it. I think part of it was I wasn't sure what it was trying to be. Like, is it a comedy? Is it a slasher? Is it a parody or is it an homage? It does have an uneven tone, but yeah. I feel you can just kind of ride through I can that. get past that now yeah. <laughs> when I watch it. And... You know, obviously I was interested enough in revisiting it that I showed it to you. Mm -hmm. Like I, I wanted you to see it the first time we watched it. And the more I watch it, the more I feel like there's just, there's something so loving about like how they piece it together. Like clearly this was written, it was written from a perspective of someone who loves these movies. Yeah. You know, there's sometimes you watch something and you feel like, oh, they're just making fun of that thing that you love. This is not that case. They are making fun of some elements that any of us would make fun of ourselves if we were riffing on like, you know, the stupid things that people do, the corny dialogue, like the 
the ridiculous choices of putting yourself in certain situations, the catchphrases, like that kind of stuff. What's interesting, too, is that in comparing the two and and both work fine. So it's like it's not one does not suffer for doing it a different way. But this is we know this, too, because I was just looking up to in interviews. They said as much Cabin in the Woods was very much created to sort of interrogate the state of the slasher genre and horror, in particular, a reliance on torture porn kind of violence. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's saying we're questioning everything about how this works. And in doing so, they created something brilliant and entertaining and very like a fresh, different perspective. Right. This one, I feel, isn't interrogating that structure it's celebrating it mm. and just saying that's what it was back then and how goofy was that and now let's go back and see what happens when you put a modern sensibility back into that era when everybody was like that and it also comes out brilliant and mm. but it's a very different kind of approach they also look very different because cabin in the woods is very dire and very dark and creates a world that looks frightening and very immersive Final Girls, for the most part, is very bright and colorful. It's very 80s. Because it's 80s. Right. right. And and it feels very much like there's just sunlight everywhere. Even in some of the night shots, eventually, it feels like <laughs> there's like a, a a glow to everything in the movie that it feels very neon, appropriately enough. And it kind of extends to some of the poster art and everything, too. Just a side note also is only recently in my desire to try to like cram in watching many more older movies mm -hmm. and i had recently uh like a few months back i watched Lumberto bava's demons and that movie the first one the first demons kicks off everything kicks off while everybody's in the movie theater and somebody gets possessed and all hell breaks loose and it struck me the last time we watched it i don't know if they're fans of that too but it was interesting that like things kick off in a movie theater where all things go awry and it's a different kind of thing because they basically leave reality into a movie. But it felt a little demony, the the movie theater bit. I can see that. I mean, we've seen that now in, in several films that we've watched of things kind of going awry. You could argue like the the piece in Scream 2 in the opening yeah. where you're having a murder oh. in a movie theater. And one of the movies that I want you to see at some point that we haven't watched yet, um, the uh, talking about meta which would fit with this in a certain respect. The very, very meta 90s Schwarzenegger movie, The Last Action Hero, mm -hmm. actually is... I'm, I'm sure the, the final girl, I can't believe the final girls, they didn't know this or were partly right. inspired. Because the premise of that one is a little boy gets a ticket, like a magic ticket. He loves Jack Slater movies, which is Schwarzenegger's character. And he steps through the screen, I think, exactly steps through the screen. And goes into that universe, the only problem being that then a villain from the movie gets back out. They did that as well in, I I don't know if you've seen it, it strikes me as something you probably wouldn't have. But when they did the um, Rocky and Bullwinkle movie where Piper Parabo is the main character... I don't think I saw that one. And Rocky and Bullwinkle and Boris and Natasha are uh, all they come out in to the, the real, real world. world. Yeah. They were CGI 3D. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
I mean, you know, that's but that it's was... the same kind of idea there. Yeah. I mean, it's also Roger Rabbit. I mean, it's yeah. you've got a, a rich history of yes. of that crossover. Yeah, though it's usually you know an animation crossover. So it sounds like Last Action Hero is also. I think preceding Roger Rabbit was also the uh, film noir one, Cool World. Which was more for adults because I remember I think it was Kim Basinger did the voice. She's like a femme fatale type, but she's a cartoon. She, mm-hmm. and there's a mix with real world and. I mean, also yeah. parallel. We literally just rewatched this yesterday, but um, the the modern reboot Jumanji movie yes. has that same feel where they're getting pulled into the world with yeah. real stakes. Yeah. Um, for the characters, same kind of idea. So I, I, it's an interesting concept and it's made much, I guess, much more interesting to me by the fact that there's a personal connection to it. Like you said, that mother daughter story where she's getting this opportunity to spend time again with her mother, who's now been dead for a few years. And it's, it's very poignant. Like there's something very touching about it. I think also, I, I, I mean, I think the writing is beautiful too. It's, it's not just the act. It's not a case I would say of like it's saved by the actors, but for me, and Ackerman do a fantastic job together and really sell a relationship. Mm-hmm. But also, it wouldn't be that way if there wasn't the writing. And I really think the writing is there. An interesting, fun little side note <laughs> for you: the final girls was uh, co-written. By Joshua John Miller and his partner, M.A. Fortin, who often write together. Joshua John Miller is the son of Jason Miller, Father Karras from The Exorcist. So he's part of like a horror... uh, A family tradition. Family tradition, yeah. But what's also interesting is uh, some of you may also know Final Girls co-writer Joshua John Miller for his unforgettable turn as an actor... As the brother in 1989's cult film Teen Witch, which we also just recently rewatched. We did. I consider his performance of that to be one of the most unexplainable things I've ever seen in cinema history. <laughs> the director just let it happen. It's just, they just let it happen. And yeah. it's like, why was there no one there? That was intentional. But of course, Teen Witch is basically an entire catalog of, they just let it happen. He did make his film debut, by the way, um, as Little Willie Chalice, one of Tom Atkins' kids in Halloween 3. Aww. He's the one, yeah. But we know that he probably gets it, so that's okay. Because <laughs> he was wearing that mask pretty much nonstop mm-hmm. when he's a little kid. But yeah, he did a, did a few things in the 80s and 90s and then uh, segued into writing and, and other things. But Then we're all the better for it. Yeah, I mean, as the co-writer of The Final Girls, this is a beautiful little homage, not just to slashers, but also, like I say, a very heartfelt movie that I feel really delivers on a central relationship that's very... Uh, like emotionally satisfying and the relationship between the friends as well yeah it's like they all kind of come to terms with who they are and they're all real supportive of each other i think yeah. we talked about the fact too that there's like the scene where the three girlfriends deal with their various issues related to max having shut them out after her mother's death and you know while the bechdel test has sort of 
Alison Bechdel herself has sort of maybe not disowned, but often said that that's been distorted like, a bit too much. Don't make it much. your only touchstone yeah. for whether or not something is worthwhile. People fell in love with that a little too much, even for her uh, liking, I think. But, they love simple binary like decision-making tools. But it is true to say that you have women in this movie whose relationship is defined by their friendship with each other and not relationships with men, and they have conversations it's entirely about their lives what they're mm -hmm. doing and and it's part of it i think that makes it really work yeah, really well for sure and actually most of the men are are actually most of the men in this are pretty easily discarded from adam divine's really like over the top toxic you know 80s ass to you know others it's, it's mainly the girls that really i love drive the film adam divide's character though and like you know that it's 90 percent improv where they had like one line they wanted him to hit and they just let him do like 25 30 takes where he was different every single time he's the toxic guy which he plays you know pretty well and it sounds like is not that guy in life he's he's a nice guy but he has such amazing improv chops that you kind of wish there was a little more of him in it, but he's also not one of our real world people friends. He's a character. And so, you know, it's, you, you get as much as they're able to give you of him, but I, I would take more of it. Talk about offshoot movies. Like, oh yeah. I, I, I want to see him in the movies the other movies that actor made. And a cute other little side note is that Chloe Bridges is in this as the girl who's supposed to be the final girl in Camp Bloodbath, but because of their intervention, gets killed. He gets killed like first. And hit and who Adam Devine's character keeps trying to like, you know, hit on. They're married for real. But they also married long after this. Like they got married in twenty twenty one. But evidently right. they they'd known each other for years, got together, and now they're a couple. And it's like that's kind of cool. So basically, it's uh, what it's Paula and Kurt from the Final Girls wind up together in the end. Final basically. Girls is the movie that brings people together. Anyone want to help me pick some strawberries? Nope. But I'll give you a hand with those melons. Talking about her boobs. You guys get me right? Yeah, we do, brother. <laughs> Kurt is insatiable. Um, okay, so... Before we wrap up entirely, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned at the beginning, which is you had put out a post on one of our... We're both on post.news now, trying out this new social media platform. Mm -hmm. Jury's still out, but it has things about it that are kind of nice. And like in the midst of the um, like Twitter diaspora or whatever we're... Yeah. So you had put out a thing on post.news about this episode upcoming, and you'd also asked some people if you were going to recommend other movies, because sometimes we have done three, other movies to go with this idea of these two, both of which are sort of meta commentaries on slashers in different ways. Right. Yeah. Like if you're going to turn this from a double feature to a triple feature... Yeah. What would you tack on to this? You got two responses, which is uh, quite a bit for post on news. If you've been point. on the internet, you know any response is uh, yeah. a victory. One of them, Paula, uh, mentioned Ready or Not, which we did see once. Yeah, Ready or Not, I think, definitely fits conceptually, like with that line of like sort of, it's not quite meta, but it's a movie 
it's almost vaguely self-aware that it is what it is, but yeah. it basically stays within the universe. It does. Yeah. I won't spoil anything for anyone who hasn't seen Ready or Not. And so who really, knows, we might do it one day. We might, but I, I will just say as like the the short takeaway from it is that I really like it conceptually. I like the the idea, this driving force behind the movie, as well as the characters themselves which are all sort of almost caricatures in the same way you'll see in like ryan johnson movies now like the same kind of exaggerated character types Mm -hmm. you might have from like knives out or glass onion or something like that i just had a lot of difficulty watching the movie because i would say at least 70 to 80 percent of this film the camera was shaking oh right and Beyond anything else or any other pros or cons I might have for the film, it's what makes me not able personally to recommend it because you basically had to describe huge chunks of the movie to me while I looked away because I was getting motion sick. Well, also, I mean, I'm I'm perfectly happy to revisit it at some point, but also I really didn't like it. I, I mean, again, I'll, I won't go into it because we'll talk about it one day, maybe if we revisit this movie very quickly has become a real beloved, like modern horror achievement. And, and I, I understand. I understand. Kind of I understand why. it from a conceptual point yeah. of view, but I just don't get it from the final result. But anyway, but I mean, I it, it sounds like it's a nice not not at all to denigrate Paul suggesting it. No, it's it's because it makes pairing. sense. It makes sense. I I mean it's one of those where I give it a ten out of ten for concept and yeah. like a four out of ten for execution. Yeah. And I might change my mind if I ever revisit it. I it, changed my mind on the final girl. Yeah, so I might, don't know. It might be that I was in a certain mood at the time. So who knows? And then uh, you mentioned CZ Hargett before, right? Also suggested uh, quite a list of potential thirds from like a, a wide variety of different ways of looking at the meta thing so the first two that were mentioned are Shaun of the dead and an american werewolf in london mm-hmm. which while in the past i would never have necessarily said are quite meta i get where that's coming from in the idea that they are actually sort of self-aware commentaries on the on the genre in which they're telling the story both of those i think are more closely related to the final girls in tone rather than cabin in the woods cabin in the woods is like fully meta although neither one of those like violates the reality of the movie that they're in or suggests there's anything greater happening like cabin in the woods does but i get the idea of them being meta in the sense they were movies that came along and said we love this kind of movie but let's look at it from a different perspective and both of them also are deeply tragic and deeply real and yet manage to also weave a great deal of comedy into it. Yeah. In a way that I feel is natural rather than parody. You know, it's not a satire. It's comedy that I feel grows organically out of the characters like you would in a real world. Shaun of the Dead in particular, I think tonally really meshes with the final girls. And then there were two others that C.C. Hargett mentioned. One is One Cut of the Dead. I finally got around to seeing that months ago. I can't remember if I've mentioned it on the show that I saw it. I think I might have. You might have. It's one of those um, you had to watch on your own because I can't watch it. It's, it's basic. I mean, it's, it's found footage. It's, yeah. a, it's a lot of handheld. 
It's a Japanese movie about a zombie movie. And it got so much praise, and it's still getting praise. It's very, very highly regarded. I really, really didn't like it. Finally, C.Z. Hargett mentioned Young Frankenstein. Mel Brooks is Young Frankenstein. And you actually commented on that, that you particularly like that. And actually, yeah. I kind of wanted to like, part, partially put you on the spot on that one, because I saw your reply that you really liked that choice. I have to say, being so deeply familiar with that and yes. all of Mel Brooks' classic stuff, I'm not sure I see why Young Frankenstein fits in this category. Because Young Frankenstein is a movie that is, on one hand, making fun of some of the sort of the tropes and also the effects of some of these like universal horror movies but on the other hand clearly loves them it's like there is i'm gonna make fun of these things about this that i think are silly but i'm only doing it because i love them so much okay and so to me that that's the self-aware part is that yeah. it's making fun of it while being because i guess i've gotten so i've grown up with that one i know and it's like to me like a lot of fans it was done with so much love and respect that it really is largely, I would say, by most fans of the Universal stuff, regarded as a genuine sequel. Because it is actually perfectly in keeping with the continuity. It follows enough that it it is an actual sequel to the other Frankenstein movies, and it fits. And but it also pokes fun. But it does also, okay. A so, lot. Like, so the meta thing is the idea that it's both within that world and then also sitting outside it and saying, isn't this silly? Yeah, it's, it's within okay. that world and right. it loves that world, but it's also aware that some of the things that were created, either just because of the storytelling or just as a byproduct of the time in which it was made and not being able to make things look right. as sharp or realistic or or sort of seamless as we're used to. Right down to him having the zipper and the stuff. Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. I got you. It's sort of saying like, I think I was kind of blind to it because I'm so used to that one. It's hard to even analyze it. So, yeah. I could see in your face when we started talking about it that you were like a little worried that I thought it worked because you were thinking, how could it possibly? But, yeah. No, I yeah, got it. It, it does. Yeah. And I, I like the idea of tacking on a, a triple feature of this that like cabin in the woods talks a lot about what the state of horror was at the time it was being made mm -hmm. and the final girls is talking about like the reverence and nostalgia for the films of like the late 70s and early mid 80s and then young frankenstein ah. is like a look back at the universal era in the 30s and the 40s I see. and monster movies and you could kind of see it as a progression in time if i you like put that the three okay. of them together i get it completely now okay i like that and, it, and it becomes a time travel triple feature kind of thanks for listening to ghouls in the house featuring natalie bielatowski and rlt blumberg you can find Natalie on post.news at nblatowski that's nblit of sky and arnold at doctor of the dead that's me our movies this episode were The Cabin in the Woods, 2011, 
and The Final Girls, 2015. Movies like this end when The Final Girl kills the main bad guy and the credits roll. Rules in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. rooting for this girl she's got so much heart you think of all the pain and the punk tequila is my lady